I'm excited to start a new sermon series this week on conflict. And conflict is one of those things that we don't really want to talk about. It's, uh, it's a little bit awkward. And I think that most of our life is spent avoiding conflict. And what we want to do is take some time and see not just how to handle conflict well, but actually to find meaning in life in that. I, I think of uh, whether it's my relationship with my wife or my children or this family, I can't become a better person or have healthier relationships unless I understand how to deal with conflict. And if you have decided to live the kind of life that just avoids conflict, I can pretty much guarantee that you're going to be lonely. Uh, because there's no way to engage in meaningful relationships without having to work something through. And so if you're one of those people who just prefers to uh, withdraw and kind of check out, let me encourage you to, uh, to listen through this series. And if you're one of those people who is more than happy to have conflict, but it doesn't always go very well, I encourage you to listen to this series as well, because you might find ways to do it better. Uh, today we're going to be starting, we're going to be looking at different Bible stories that deal with different kinds of conflict. And this week we're going to be looking at conflict with people who would be considered our enemies. Now, uh, do you have any of those? Don't point. Uh, but, uh, you know, do you have people who, uh, who you just don't get along with? And they don't like you and you don't like them much and... What are you going to do with that? I've had a few of those over the years. And I won't point either. And uh, uh, we want to look at a story in the Bible that maybe you're not very familiar with. But it's a story that I have thought about a lot over the years and found it to be very helpful. And I, if you don't know me, I like looking for Bible stories or for ideas in the Bible that aren't uh, obvious or easy to understand. And I like having a go and trying to see whether we can figure these things out together. And so this is one of those stories. The backdrop of the story is in the Old Testament, there was a famous king. His name was King David. And he was kind of, he had some issues now and then. But by and large, he was an amazing king in Israel and uh, deeply loved and respected by the people in his kingdom. But his family life wasn't the best. And he had a son named Absalom, who eventually tried to take over his kingdom, usurp his kingdom, steal it away from him, draw all of Israel to himself, and get them to rebel against David. So he had a little strategy, and, uh, and it looked as though it was beginning to work. David found out that Absalom was trying to overthrow his kingdom, and so he fled Jerusalem, the capital city, and he's going through this Kidron Valley. Now, if you, if you see a, a map of Jerusalem, it's up on a hill, and the deepest valley is called the Kidron Valley, and it's between the Mount of Olives and where Jerusalem is. And so David is fleeing for his life from his own son going through this valley. Now, this valley has great spiritual significance. We've talked about it in the previous series. It's the same valley that Jesus walked through when he was betrayed. When he was betrayed by Judas, he went from the Mount of Olives through this valley up to be judged 
in Jerusalem. Here we see David in that same valley being betrayed by his own son, fleeing from him. Now, as he's going through this valley, he has five encounters with people. Uh, a political advisor, a military leader, a priest, somebody who's just kind of an opportunist looking to capitalize on this moment. And the final person is a guy named Shimei. And if you are of Jewish descent, I apologize for all the pronunciation of the names that I'm going to say today. But this is the last person that he encounters. And uh, this is how the story goes. It's taken from 2 Samuel 16. You'll see up in the notes. A man from the same clan as Saul's family. Now, Saul was the king before David. But David worked really hard at, at honoring this king, but this is not what's thought of here. So a man from the same clan as Saul's family came out. His name was Shimei, son of Jerah. And he cursed as he came out. He pelted David and all the king's officials with stones, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and left. So this is incredibly bold. Um, as he cursed, Shammai said, get out, get out, your, mur your murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed on the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a murderer. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Subtle. Uh, let me go over and cut off his head. Subtle even more. But the king said, what does this have to do with you, son of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord said to him, curse David, who can ask, why do you do this? David then said to Abishai and to all his officials, my son, my own flesh and blood is trying to kill me. How much more than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse. Get this. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse today. So David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing as he went and throwing stones at him and showering him with dirt. This is, a little, this is difficult. Um, I can... Uh, I remember, you know, one of my first enemies in grade eight. He was bigger than me, and uh, uh, I was this wimpy little kid. And as I, as I would drive home on the bus, I took the bus home, he would, uh, he would take his pencil and tap me on the back of my head all the way home. It's like, oh, oh, oh that was so hard. I still get a little angry inside when I... Uh, <laughs> And this is, uh, this is nothing like stones being pelted, dirt being, it's just, it's, the insult is incredible. So the story goes on and uh, through the work of God and through the wisdom of David, his throne is now restored to him. Absalom's plot did not work. After this, this is what Shammai says in 2 Samuel 19. When Shemai, son of Jirah, uh, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the Lord and said to him, May my Lord not, withhold, not hold me guilty. Do not remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. 
begging for mercy. So the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king promised him on oath. Incredible. Incredible treatment of an enemy in a way that this guy did not deserve, but extended mercy to him instead of judgment, even though he was in his full right to judge this man. Now, David assumed lots of things. There's so much to talk about in this passage. I just love this passage. I've meditated on it for so many years, but I want to point out two things. David assumed two things. Number one, his enemy, his enemies were a means of God's judgment on him. So I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I think my enemies are bad and they have nothing to do with God. And if they come from anywhere, it's not heaven, right? I mean, that's what I'm, that's what I'm assuming. Uh, when David has an enemy, he says, no, this, this was sent from God. Uh, and it's part of God's judgment on me. Have you ever thought of it that way? That's a strange way to look at an enemy. So that guy tapping my, you know, head. Oh, you've come from God to torment me. I receive this as judgment from my heavenly father for all my grade eight sins. Like, really? And this is what, this is what David is assuming. Now, it's worse because uh, he assumes that this man has come from God. God has told him to curse me. But the curses that he puts upon David are unjustified. If you read the backstory to this story, uh, David performed in an opposite way to what Shimei is, is accusing him of. Uh, David went out of his way to honor Saul and his family. So much so, there's a, he had a, a, there was not many left of his clan, but I think his name is Mephishbosheth, who was, a, who was lame. And he says, this is one of Saul's descendants. To honor the name of Saul, you come and sit at my table and eat with me every day. So the accusations that were coming against him were really unjustified. So why would he do this? So this is my sad explanation, but it has to do with, uh, with me. It's back when I was at UBC, and I drove quite quickly back then. And again, I, the uh, police were thoroughly misunderstanding of my driving ability. They took away my license for a number of months. I don't get it. And uh, uh, where I lived, I lived at Cary Hall, and some of the profs would send a letter to Carrie Hall likening my driving to somebody walking down the sidewalk with a loaded shotgun. So misunderstood. And I remember uh, two particular times. One was on 4th Avenue, and the other was going over the Oak Street Bridge. I got pulled over by the police. Now, I remember, I'll just tell you the 4th Avenue one. I'm driving along 4th Avenue, and a Corvette comes 
and cuts me off so that I miss the light. He goes through and I miss the light. That's not right. Okay? I just want you to know that. That's a bad thing that that Corvette man did. And so, uh, so I was a little bit upset, wait for the light to turn. And so I book it, catching up to the Corvette to somehow express my displeasure. Wow, immature, right? <laughs> just so immature. But I did this. And so I am catching up to the Corvette to signal to uh, him that that was not a great thing. That, but I didn't, I didn't get that far because a police man pulled me over and gave me a ticket. And so in my head, so I know for sure the Corvette was going faster than me, right? So why didn't you pull over him instead of me, hey? <laughs> on just point number one, and just point number two, you know, I was just catching up. <laughs> so that can't be speeding in a non-purposeful kind of way. There was purpose to my speeding. Point number two. I mean, it's just dumb, right? So I'm feeling indignant. Well, the truth is, I sped every day, all the time. No regard for the law. And I'm choked that the one time I think I have an excuse, I get pulled over and think I'm being unjustly accused. Isn't that ridiculous? It's just stupid. You know, welcome to my mind. But uh, so you look at an enemy who's accusing you unjustly and you say, how dare they? But what the enemy doesn't know is the thousands of other times you've been thoroughly sinful and our pride is insulted, right? So here's what David knows. David isn't agreeing with the accusation of Shimei. But uh, scholars debate over this. But he knows the sinfulness in his heart, his uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba, killing her husband to cover it up. He knows he's a sinner. And he knows all of the judgment toward him is thoroughly justified. And he says, this person is reminding me of who I am. This enemy is reminding me of that. And I receive it as coming from the hand of God. That's point number one. Do you ever think like, I never think like this. I never think like this. I mostly, when it comes to enemies, I'm mostly working through my head how I'm right and they're wrong. That's mostly what's going through my head. And what's mostly going through David's head is how he's wrong and they're right. Now, I don't know about you, but that would dramatically change how I would interact with enemies with that mindset. I wonder how you're right and I'm wrong in this moment. 
Can you imagine interacting with an enemy with that attitude? Dramatically change how those encounters would go, would it not? Point number one. Point number two. Um, in now 1 Samuel uh, 22, verse 4. So everything's happy again. He's restored back to his throne. It's all good. And then he sings a psalm, a, a song of praise to God. This is what he says in verse 4. I have been saved from my enemies. We go, yes, you have. And God was good to you. This is amazing. Now, listen to the reason why he believed that God saved him from his enemies. This is where it gets tricky. This is now verse 21. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. So here's a guy who says, uh, you know, I deserve this cursing. And then he gets saved, and he says, I know why I got saved. I am a righteous man. That's why I got saved. It's like, what are you doing? You just admitted that you weren't, and then now you're saying the reason why you've, you've been blessed by God again, saved, interesting word, because when we think of saved, it's always this free gift, right? Which, of course, it is. But we think salvation, free gift, and he says, no, I was saved because I'm good. Blameless. Clean heart. And God saved David because of David's righteousness. Now, if you've been in the church for a while, you are conditioned or, or programmed to think in certain ways. And as soon as we hear the word salvation, we immediately think this free gift from God that we can't deserve, manipulate, buy, or coerce. Salvation is always viewed that way in the church. And for good reason, especially as you read the New Testament. But for some reason, David says, no, no, I'm saved from my enemies because I'm righteous. What are we going to do with this? How does, and this righteousness, uh, again, scholars assume that the righteousness that he's referring to is that he forgave Shemai of his, you know, betrayal. He forgave Shemai, which was a righteous thing to do in the face of judgment. Okay? So that's what's going on. Now, uh, why does he uh, think that forgiving others leads to his salvation? Why does he think this? Are you following the train of thought? Yeah. How does forgiving someone else for their sin going to lead to my salvation and victory over my enemies? Let's try to explain this by looking at the word forgiveness. I think forgiveness is one of the most misunderstood words in the English language. And I think the way that we typically think of what forgiveness is, is don't worry about it. So somebody cuts you off and you say, I mean, you'll never say it because it's an art, we don't use these, this language, but we, we don't say, I forgive you. But we say, I don't worry about it. It's okay. No problem. It's fine. Uh, forgiveness is mostly a emotion of not 
kind of holding something against another person. So if I say, I forgive you, I'm saying, I'm not going to hold that against you. I'm not, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to get over it. I'd like to give you what I think is a more biblical definition of, of forgiveness. And it's this. You pay, not them. So the best way that I know to describe forgiveness is uh, about money. So if you owe me money and I forgive your debt, what does that mean? It means I'm going to absorb that cost instead of you. That's what it means, right? So forgiveness doesn't mean no one pays. It means I pay instead of you. That's what it would mean to forgive your debt. So I'm going to pay for a crime that you've committed. Um, there is inside of us all a sense of justice, a sense of uh, social rightness, and there's right ways to behave. Uh, society uh, owes us things. Um, it owes us honor, not abuse. It owes us uh, peace and harmony, not violence. It owes us faithfulness. We expect the people around us to be faithful and true to their word. There are certain things, I think, that are given, as it says in Romans 2, uh, of what right relationship is. We all have a conscience. And so what forgiveness means is that in the face of dishonoring me through, you know, abuse or taking an advantage or disrespect, in the face of dishonor, I'm going to pay you back with honor. I'm going to, the very thing that you should have given me, I'm going to give to you, even though you deserve the opposite of it. So if I, you follow me on this now. So, uh, so you, you, well, I'm going to turn to Romans 12. It's the best way to say this. It says in Romans 12, it says, bless those who persecute you. See how that's the opposite? So you're being persecuted and you return a blessing. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If somebody is dishonorable towards you, don't be dishonorable back. Do the opposite. So here's the example. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And with David, if he's been disrespectful and betray, extend to him mercy and forgiveness. Do the opposite of what that person deserves and get this, now you're forgiving them. It's not just some, hey, don't worry about it, it's all good with a fist pump. It's, no, I'm actually going to absorb the cost, the betrayal, what you should have done for me, you did not do, you did the opposite of that. I'm going to absorb that and respond to you 
in a way that you don't deserve. And in that moment, I will be forgiving you. I will be paying for your debt. So you sowed disrespect, I pay you back in respect. Shocking thought, absolutely shocking. So I listen to people go, you know, I forgive you. Or I say it, I forgive you. And I go, really? Am I just saying that to get out of an awkward moment? Or am I willing to pay for their crime against me? David was willing to pay for his crime against him, paying back mercy where betrayal was given to him. So here's what forgiveness is. You pay them what they owe you. You pay them what they owe you. You were expecting respect, so give them respect. In the face of their disrespect, you expected, uh, they gave you violence, you pay them back with peace. You turn the other cheek. I think this would change the world, would it not? Yeah. I think it changed the world. Uh, so, I listen to people, because I, I do a fair amount of counseling, I listen to people working through forgiveness. And what it typically sounds like when people are working through forgiveness is they're working through not being angry anymore. According to this, working through forgiveness is figuring out how to pay them back what they don't deserve. That's what it would mean to work through forgiveness. Let's keep going, it gets worse. Uh, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, what is God's response to our mercy or forgiveness that we extend to others? How does God respond when we're merciful to others or forgiving to others or generous or kind to others? What does God do? How does he respond to our mercy? Matthew 6, 14 tells us exactly what we're talking about right now. Listen to this. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, pay their debt, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, pay your debt. So we all want God to forgive our debt, do we not? Please say yes. We all want God to freely forgive our debt. And so God says, as you forgive other people's debt, as you give the opposite of what they deserve, I'm going to give you the opposite of what you deserve. Fair is fair. I'm a just God. You think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay uh, for a crime that you are, are not sorry for and are judgmental toward others and now you expect me to be merciful toward you? No, I'm not a sucker. I'm a God of justice. And that would be an unjust thing for me to do, to forgive you if you don't want to forgive others. Uh, those of you who are in your D group, when you go through the, uh, our, our sermon, we're gonna, you're going to look at, I think it's Matthew 18, if I remember correctly. But you're going to be going through this in your small group. It'll be a really, yeah, Matthew 18. It'll be a really helpful discussion for you. Here's the idea. 
If you pay for others' debts against you, God pays for your debt against him. Mercy is a just reward for the merciful. So, you and I have the power to determine how God relates to us, to relates to you. If you would like a free gift of mercy, God says, I'd love to give that to you. Do that to others. I'm going to pay for your sin, which are like in the millions. I'd like you to pay for one. Can you pay for one? Can you turn the other cheek? And if you can't turn the other cheek because you get personally insulted a couple times, what do you think my forgiveness is about? You think this is a ticket for you to be selfish? You think that's what my mercy is about? No, I'm merciful to those who practice mercy because I see in their heart that this is what they long for. And so out of my infinite generosity, I'm going to be merciful to you. This isn't earning the mercy of God. It's a heart that understands the mercy of God and doesn't betray it. So how does God save us from our enemies? In closing, how does God save us from our enemies? He doesn't just remove conflict, which is what I think most of us would hope for. It's what I hope for. If I'm having an argument with somebody, I just hope it's over. I, that's mostly what I'm thinking about. He doesn't do that. He pays us with the currency we use to pay others. He pays us with the currency that we've been using to pay others with. So I listen to people describe with great anger the injustices towards them. Great anger. Just, do you know what people have done to me? Do you have any idea? And I've listened to some pretty horrific stories. Can you follow me on this? So, first of all, that's just horrible. That's first of all. I listen to some stories of abuse. It's just, there's no other word for it. I, it breaks my heart. And it's not right. Work through this with me, you guys. Just work this next moment through with me. This is going to be hard, okay? What if we deserved way worse than that? What if we deserve hell, torment, punishment, fire, rot, destruction? What if you and I actually deserve that?
And through our enemies, we get a taste of pain. And instead of rising up in self-centered indignation and say, how dare you do this to me? We look in that moment and we say, my father is giving me a glimpse of what I deserve through an enemy who is unjustly, just like Shemai, unjustly accusing me and hurting me and wounding me. But I see that there's more going on here that I'm seeing what I deserve as a sinner who is shockingly self-centered. And rather than choosing self-righteousness, maybe what I need to choose in this moment is mercy. And then maybe as I choose mercy toward the criminals in my life, God will choose mercy toward me his enemy who has slimed his name and he's never done a thing wrong. I betray him daily. And maybe if I'm mildly in touch with mercy and extend that to others, then maybe I'll receive the mercy of God. You guys, I listen to people. Oh, I gotta stop. But I just, I know this is hard. You know, I listen to people work through abuse. And, you know, I, I listen to people on the job site just getting ripped off or getting unjustly fired. Or, and I listen to what happens behind closed doors in homes. And, oh, it's just horrible, 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 horrible things. I'm suggesting to you a better way to get free. Not to minimize it, not to justify it. What those things happened are wrong and they're just wrong. But maybe as we work through being merciful, we will get, instead of pride, we will get some humility and say, I deserve horrible things for what I've done in betraying the living God. And if I'm mildly in touch with that and desperate for a gift of mercy, my, I should live in humility toward my enemies. Maybe this is the way that we get set free from our pain is through mercy not demanding a self-centered justice. Now, I haven't gone through near what some of you have gone through. I've had a pretty easy life. But I've been sucker punched more than once. And the amount of stuff that we've had stolen from us, that you give somebody you know, just, uh, just a short while ago, we invite somebody over. Their way of saying thanks is to steal something from, again from our house. It's like, really? Every time you come out, like, really? Okay. And what am I going to do? I paid for that. How dare you steal from me? Or 
I deserve worse than this. And I have a heavenly father who's willing to forgive me. Can I not extend mercy to a broken soul? Can I not do that? Do you see how radical this is? How this would set us free from our judgment and pain? It's not by saying, I'm so great, I will deem you, kiss my ring, I'm so great, I'll pardon you today. To saying, no, I deserve way worse than this. And so I'm going to pay your debt in the hope that somehow my Heavenly Father will create my mega debt. And now we have a free church. Now we have free souls. Here's the irony. Just one last point, okay? I'm sorry that I'm talking so long, but you can see I just so want you to get this and not ever think that you deserve in the sense that anybody deserves being abused. I, that is always wrong. But we've got to be able to see a bigger thing going on if we're ever going to get set free. First um, Kings chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. This is the last words that um, David says in his life. The last thing he says to Solomon, and there's no words recorded that David said after this moment, all right? This is the big deal. You know, you're on your deathbed, last thing out of your mouth. He says, Solomon, don't forget Shimei and what he did for me in the Kidron Valley. Pay him back. This is just betraying everything I just said. He says, what that guy did was evil, and I want him to pay. But I made an oath that I am not going to lift up a hand against him because I'm going to practice mercy in a way that I want my father to be merciful to me. But this in no way means that I undervalue justice and demand that justice be served. And so you need to understand, I'm sorry to, but you need to understand that just because you extend mercy to your enemies doesn't mean that you're somehow forsaking justice or expecting that justice would be served on those crimes because they do deserve to be paid for. And so as you've heard me say in transformations, I'll say it here, every sin ever committed against you will be paid either by them or by Jesus on the cross. But God will be just. But it's to our glory that we forgive the enemy, that we could experience the life of mercy that we all long for. And I'm telling you these things because I care about you. And I don't want to see you under the weight of judgment. Because you are crying out for his mercy and you don't know why you don't feel it. And it's because you're a judgmental person who has a double standard and who's wanting mercy but is demanding that everybody around you pay. And the only way that I know for you to experience the love and mercy of the Father is if you forgive first and absorb the debts that other people owe you by responding in an opposite way in the ways that they don't deserve but desperately need 
just like you. Can we please pray? Father, this is a hard word. And so please, I just beg of you, Father, would you please not let this be misunderstood? That somehow this is the condoning of abuse. It is not. But you are so big and so powerful that even when something is unjustly done toward us, you can use it as a moment to humble us and to help us realize how much we need the mercy of God. And as we see how much we need it, oh, let us freely give it to others. Father, would you build our lives on your mercy, even in the face of our enemies, that good would triumph over evil and that we would be set free not just from our enemies, but from our own judgmentalism, from our own self-righteousness. And so as David, we receive our enemies as coming from the hand of God to convict us of our own atrocities that we could be found merciful in every dimension. Work these things in our heart, we pray.